Hello, everyone, and welcome to Writers Drinking Coffee. This is a podcast based on writers sitting around drinking wine and coffee, talking about writing, publishing, the whole creative process. We do not censor ourselves, so consider us PG-13. Your hosts for today's show are John Schmidt and me, Jeannie Warner. This is episode 43, Interview with Madeline Robbins. So, if you love Regency adventures, superheroes, and really smart books, you're going to love Madeline. Hi, say hi, Madeline. Hello. Madeline, hey, hey. I sound so smart. <laughs> yeah. You have to give us more than that. Give us the name of some of these. I want to go read these. I love those things. Oh, we're oh go- okay. We're, we're um, going to tell them about your Regency adventure novels. Well, I have three and three quarters of uh, books in a series about... Sarah Tolerance, Sam Spade with a sword in an alternate version of the English Regency. Um, She is a fallen woman. The opening sentence in the first book is, it is a truth universally acknowledged that a fallen woman of good family must soon or late descend to whoredom. Economically, this was pretty much the fact of the time, but my heroine does not want to become a prostitute and therefore she turns herself into a private eye or the um, Regency equivalent of a private eye and has adventures. Um, I I honestly think anybody that enjoys the Phryne Fisher novels based in Australia around the right after World War I would love these. It's a similar idea of you're a lady detective. What's that? Oh, yeah. I, I, I will say that I potched around with history because I know enough about the Regency era that I was not completely comfortable doing what I wanted to do in the real world. So this is a slightly altered version of the English Regency in which George III went off his rocker permanently in the 1780s. Uh, his eldest son, who would have been George IV, is knocked out of the succession by virtue of having married a uh, Catholic widow named Mariah Fitzherbert. And his mother, uh, has, Queen Charlotte, has become the regent. And so it is, it is a regency. It's just not the regency that actually happened. Um, and These are not the regencies you're looking for. It sounds more powerfully female, or at least more openly powerfully female. Is it true that there's a book in the series called Lady John? No, no, no. That's that's from my early secret life as a straight romance writer from when I was a very small Madeline. Um, I wrote my first book, not actually planning to be a writer. I wanted to be an actor, and I was unfortunately not terribly good, and even worse, I was not terribly um, driven. And if you're going to be in theater, you have to be kind of insanely driven. Um, And I was in a situation where I could not do anything much for about six months. My mother was ill. I was living with her. And... um, So I was trying to find things that would amuse me to read, and Georgette Heyer was dead, which made it really hard to get any more Heyer. And I had read pretty much all of the Regency writers that I liked. There were lots that I didn't much care for. So I wrote one to amuse myself, 
And when I was done, my mother read it and said, oh, this is good. I'm going to send it to a friend of mine, the friend being someone I had known all my life who happened to be an editor. And to my stunned shock and amazement, they took it. And I wrote four more. Uh, And then I wanted to get the hell out of romance. So I did for a while and wrote a book in which I blew up my hometown, which is New York City. Uh, This was significantly before anybody else tried. Um, Wait, you're not so old that you beat Godzilla. Well. Godzilla started with Tokyo, though. New York was kind of a sequel. She probably had the more original pizza flattening. Well, and, and really, Godzilla had to come to New York because if you can break it there, you can break it anywhere. Uh, I said that. I'm sorry. Why are you sorry? We we queued it up for you. You were kind <laughs> enough to take the swing. That was practically a softball. So I I just it, let's take a moment and say how come in all of those books he didn't just walk across the Pacific to attack Los Angeles? I don't know. I because mean, it's geographically too emotionally speaking. satisfying. Oh, hey, hey. It's my hometown you're talking about. Well, the, the trouble is, is that even Los Angelinos kind of hate the other half of Los Angeles, but it, New Yorkers will, will, will fiercely guard everything New York, including the rats. But, oh, yeah. you know, if you stomped on San Bernardino, which to people far from Los Angeles is still Los Angeles, although it's not at all Los Angeles, or Venice or Pasadena, you know, Leave people Venice would go... Alone. <laughs> I think Godzilla should have come ashore at Stanford and stomped on Slack, the Stanford Lizard Accumulation Center. They've been radiating lizards and sending them across the ocean for a long time. But going back to Regency, besides Georgette Heyer, who is, is wonderful, delicious, and no longer obtainable, as you noted, um, why else that period? Um, it has an enormous amount of stuff going on. Aside from the Napoleonic War, uh, or wars, because it goes on forever. Uh, it is a kind of, I'm not much on the Victorians. I realize that there are people for whom that is meat and drink. It is kind of a transitional period between the Enlightenment and the Victorian age. It has the romantics. It has huge social fluxes. It has a point at which um, English Protestantism is kind of all over the map. You've got the, the Smilesian upward uh, per, um, cycle of perfectibility, which becomes very powerful during the Victorian era. It's just got all sorts of stuff. Also, I like the clothes. Um, this is absolutely frivolous of me, but as a small child, I was bitten by the uh, Ampere style, and I like the aesthetics of the period a lot more than the Victorians or the Georgians for that matter. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. What were your, what were your steps to, from the, I want to be an actress to, I want to be a, you know, to writing because yes, mm-hmm. you did. Was, was it just the first novel that you ever finished suddenly got published and there you are, or did um, you have middle steps? I had always, I think told stories. I used to write um, when I was in my early teens, I was a big fan of romantic suspense of the young woman running away from the 
brooding castle kind of uh, gothic thing. And so I used to write those. They were about 40 pages long, written longhand. And I had a friend who would come over and take one of these stories and sit in the closet and read it and come out and tell me that it was great. Um, but this is going to, I do not want this to sound arrogant or obnoxious. This was easy enough that I never took it seriously. Um, you know, it, it was like, Shoving words together in a row was something that I could do without stress or blood popping out on my forehead. Plotting will make blood pop out on my forehead, no problem. But the actual just words in a row. And I remember a sense of great startlement in high school when I realized that there were really smart people in my class who would rather have lain down and had a semi-truck roll over them several times than have to write a 500-word essay. Um, so I didn't take this seriously. The other thing is that my mother had always wanted to be a writer of the mid-20th century uh, short story, Updike, John O'Hara, Persuasion, and therefore she, wanted, she did not actually write Therefore, she wanted me to write so that she could have written. I do not understand the, the exact alchemical um, process whereby this would have happened. I, I don't know. We see a lot of that on TV shows now with moms of kids that are in beauty pageants, et cetera. So that's, that's not that strange in their own way of that wish fulfillment through your children. So. No, it, it's not. Um, so I didn't take writing seriously as a thing because um, it would have given my mother far too much satisfaction, which in fact it did. And uh, it was not as, as difficult or brutal as I thought it should be. On the other hand, I've always told myself stories. So I sold that first book. I was actually in England when I sold it. How old were you? Do you remember? I was, oh God, I was 23. Cool. 22 something like that. Um, and it is, I mean, I look at that book now and it is fleetingly entertaining. Oh my God, I was young. And oh my God, I was imitative. Um, Who were you imitating? Oh, higher. Higher with a, a touch of Jane Aiken Hodge. Um, but I was, and then they, they said, you got you want to do more? And I said, sure. So I wrote four regencies without pretty much stopping. Althea, um, my dear Jenny, the heiress companion, and Lady John, as John noticed. That's a trick of British title nomenclature. It's why Lord Peter Whimsey's wife is Lady Peter and not Lady Harriet. Um, if you are married to the son of a duke who is not the heir, then you take his title rather than yours. Um, I love this stuff. It's people <laughs> sat around. And so I was, I was going to say, you, you clearly love it. Have you gotten to the point where, I mean, how much research do you do for a historical fiction then? Um, I'm constantly, constantly doing research. Um, 
I love research. It is the best thing about being a writer is being able to follow factoids down dark alleys. Um, and a lot of the things that I find fascinating, other people would go, uh-huh. um, plumbing. The history of waste management with humans is fascinating. Uh, the rivers under London that were eventually sort of tamed so that a sewage system could be created. Um, I don't, ben Aronovich yeah. has a whole series on the rivers of London that actually touches little bits on that. He flirts with it. Yeah. I mean, how humans manage stuff is fascinating. I'm fascinated with medical history. I wrote an entire book set in medieval Italy about early medical education. Oh, that one sold for endless rue. It's sold for endless rue. Yes. yes. It's also Rapunzel, which makes it freaking brilliant. I love that book. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I love that book too. Um, and that one really came out of reading the Paul Zielinski version of Rapunzel to my daughters when they were young. And there is a center spread in this beautifully illustrated picture book of the witch taking the baby away from the couple. Uh, and mom is lying in her bloodied sheets. I don't think there was actually blood because it was a children's book. Uh, but she's just given birth. The husband is sitting there with his head in his hands. Going, oh, God, what have I done? And the witch, who is a, a bright old crone, is stalking out with the baby in her arms. And I thought that would be an interesting conversation. You send your husband out to get some vegetables from the next door neighbor's garden. And he comes back and says, I've got you your broccoli, honey, but there is a problem. And also, why did the witch want the baby? What is a witch going to do with the baby? Um, so that book was my, my way of getting around to answering those two <laughs> things. Writers are really weird. Writers are weirder than anybody. It also brought up, and I just enjoyed the fact that there were women who did study as physicians, which, of course, is not something they tell you about in most books and history books. Well, the, I found that out, and I had been sort of potching around with this idea about a Rapunzel retelling, and I couldn't figure out when what the Zelensky book is sort of renaissance-ish looking and i know nothing about the middle middle ages medieval italy really does not exist it's medieval a whole bunch of city states and duchies and things being over uh ridden by wars at any given moment and I know, knew nothing about this. So that was the learning curve and the research curve on that one was like practically 90 degrees. It was really steep. Um, and I am pardonably proud that it turned out as well as it did. Uh, but yes, women were doctors. There is um, the most famous of them was a woman named uh, Trotula de Ruggiero, who was referred to very often as Trotula de Salerno, and she was not just a physician, she is the mother of women's medicine. And terrifyingly enough, given that she was living in the 1100s, she wrote the book on 
essentially gynecology that was being referred to 400 years later, um, which tells you how important anybody thought that women's medicine was, but I'm also... fairly certain it's what they refer to in Congress now. Very likely, yeah. Oh, they don't refer to anything sensible in Congress. <laughs> well, I mean, medieval medicine is fascinating because it is this interesting combination of common sense stuff. Um, the Salernitan uh, School of Medicine had a series of sort of things to do to be healthy, and it was stuff like get enough sleep, eat healthy meals, don't drink too much, you know, the Easy common sense talk. stuff that we are all supposed to do and probably fall down on, and that kind of awful Butterfly McQueen in um, Gone with the Wind, uh, you puts a knife under the bed and it cuts the pain in half, wishful thinking stuff, a lot of very sophisticated herbal medicine, uh, much of which has uh, a lot of, now we know, uh, reason for it working in terms of just biochemistry, uh, and then things with ingredients that include dragon's blood and stuff like that. One of the factoids I found that I thought was just really interesting was around the time that the book is set, which is the early 1300s. Um, the, up to that point, the way that you dealt with a broken leg was you splinted it by bending the knee and strapping the calf to the thigh until the bone mended. Then they unstrapped you, and for the rest of your life, you were crippled by the fact that your bone had grown back in this unnatural position. So a brand new splint or splinting technique comes up where people are actually straightening the leg and tying sticks or two-by-fours or something to it to keep it in its proper arrangement while the bone mends. This I just... I just need to know, as you're describing this, I had a total knee replacement in December, and I'm sitting here rubbing my knees saying, oh, precious baby, I would never do that to you. <laughs> well, that's because you're very smart, and we live now and not then. There is nothing like writing historical fiction to make you happy that you don't live then. Granted, right now, given the way the world is shaped up, is an interesting and not necessarily happily interesting time to be living. But every time I meet someone who says, oh, don't you wish you lived then? I'm like, oh, God, no. Are you kidding? No painless dentistry. No painless and nobody washing their hands during uh, delivering babies. Um, and I would not have been the Duke's daughter. I would have been the goose girl who got, you know, some ugly disease, and died young. No, thank you. I like it now. I like flush toilets. Uh, flushies are the best in bidets. Speaking of, you know, just refuse. <laughs> so, if you wouldn't mind terribly, tell me about your writing tools and process. Do you use any special... Uh, are you a Scrivener woman? Are you a, a notepads? Are you pencil and paper? What do you use when you're writing things? I cover the waterfront. Um, <laughs> I the water actually front? own Scrivener, and I have never quite made the leap to hyperspace. Um, 
what will happen with me when I was working an hour and a half commute away by train, I would write in composition notebooks on the way home in the morning I slept because really, um, and then I would have to transcribe it. I tend to want to compose on a typewriter or later a, a computer just because if my brain is actually functioning, I can go a lot faster that way. Um, whether my brain is functioning or not depends on the day and how much coffee. Uh, but generally, I will just sort of start and go and then see where I'm headed. I am totally a pantser. Usually about halfway through, I had an editor when I said this, who said, oh, halfway through is the point at which you have to, you've given yourself all these things to play with and now you have to start whinnying them out. So about halfway through is the point where very often I will find myself sitting down and going, okay, I've done this and I've done that. If I want to get there, what do I have to do? The, the best way I've ever been able to explain how I do this is when I start a project, most times I have the topographical map. I know that I'm over in this valley over there and there's a river and there's stuff and I want to get to this other place that um, has those geographical features. What I don't have is the roadmap and the plot is the roadmap. So I'll get about halfway there and suddenly realize, okay, I've got to stop messing around taking these side roads and figure out how I get across the Rockies. And yeah. even then, I was going to say, do you then stop and make an outline for yourself or what? I try. Sometimes that works. Sometimes it doesn't. Um, every single project I've ever done was different from every other project. The only book I have ever completely outlined in advance was because it was required of me. I did a Marvel Comics superhero novel, which was enormous fun. But first, I had to give them a 25-page outline of the entire book. And then because it was a time-specific process, the editor said, you better start writing. It usually takes them a couple of weeks to get through the um, outline and get back to you about what changes they want. I started, I turned in the outline at the beginning of July. I turned in the book at the beginning of September. We got notes on the outline at the end of September. One of these things is not like the other. Hmm. Uh, and fortunately, they were okay with almost all of it, so I had to do a little bit of retconning, but it was, it was pretty much uh, there on the page. Can, and, can I back up and fangirl on a question just a little bit? Please. Okay, oh my God, Daredevil. How the heck did you get involved with writing a Daredevil book? That's like the <laughs> yeah, dream yeah. of so many people. <laughs> I, like, I love I, Daredevil is one of my favorite Marvel properties. Um, how did you get into Marvel? Inquiring minds are desperate to know. Um, well, you see, it's a long time ago. I had been working um, first at a publisher, and then I wound up taking a four-year detour into editing comic books, which was fascinating. Um, and then they downsized everybody, but I think four people 
out of the company and it was subsumed by a parent company and stuff. So I was um, looking for any kind of freelance work I could do. At the time, I had two smallish kids. And so working freelance seemed like a smart thing to do because then I could pick them up from school at the end of the day. Um, so I was having lunch. There was a weekly lunch of publishing folks, mostly not of high status, at the Malibu Diner in New York City on Wednesdays. And I was at the Malibu one day, and I let it be known that I was looking for work. And Keith DeCandido, who was at the time the editor of the uh, Marvel books, said, you won't ever consider doing a Marvel tie-in novel? And I said, well, sure, sometime. That'd be fun. And he said, well, who do you like? And I said, Daredevil. And he said, oh, you know, we've got Warren Ellis lined up for a Daredevil novel. And I thought, well, all right, fuck that. I'm never going to get in that door. Two weeks later, Warren Offer and Keith called me up and said, you know that book you said you were interested in writing, which was part of why there was this time crunch, because a hole had opened up in their schedule, and there you go. So sometimes you get to do something simply because you are lucky enough to be in the right place at the right time eating a grilled cheese sandwich. And knowing a few of the right people. I, I can't help it every time I run across these stories. I'm like, there's also networking involved of somewhere okay. in there, you have to talk to people. Talking is yes. awesome. I'm sorry? I said talking is awesome. Talking is awesome. Um, listening is also very good because sometimes you will pick something up, um, especially if you're researching. Um, everybody loves to discover that they know something that somebody else wants to know. I got, when I was working on the Daredevil book, I got a couple of hours of highly billable time out of a lawyer who did not charge me because I had asked a friend of mine who's a lawyer but did not do criminal law, how do you get onto Rikers Island if you to a client? And... He said, I don't know, but I, I have a friend who's a, um, a criminal lawyer. I'll ask him if he's willing to talk to you. And he told me so much about what the process was, what it's like. Everything you see on Law & Order is not true, um, or it is, it's not that it's not true, but it is streamlined for the purpose of you know, making everything into an hour, uh, including commercial breaks. But it, this is a thing that I have learned is that everybody knows stuff about their own special interests and um, everybody wants to find out, or everybody wants to know that somebody else cares, somebody else is interested in these things. So you, you push the right button. And you can learn just breathtaking amounts of stuff. It's really cool. What would you say to uh, John, for instance, has been doing amazing things during this, uh, this time of being isolated by working with teenagers and kids and young adults that are all saying, hey, maybe we do want to write stories. Um, what would you advise for kids, for instance, as a career paths and KPIs? How do they know they're succeeding? 
This is where you can tell good stories and horror stories. (laughs) Well, first of all, don't do this unless it really is something that won't leave you alone. Um, I once taught a class on uh, writing romances and at the beginning of the class, I had the, you know, everybody sit around and tell me what they wanted to get out of it. And there was a young woman who said, well, I'm an actress and it's really hard to earn a living when you're just starting out. So I thought I could support myself by writing. And I picked myself up from the floor and I did not tell her the, the, in that moment the ridiculousness of what she was proposing. But I said, you will want to pay close attention to the statistics on publication that we will be talking about this morning. And she did pay close attention, and she did not come back after the lunch break. Uh, This is, there's a line in the musical Pippin, it is smarter to be lucky than it's lucky to be smart. This is an industry that will break your heart, um, despite all the luck in the world, and I have been luckier than many, um, I am at best a mid-list writer, and I don't know that I'm ever going to make a fortune, however much I may deserve it. Um, But I do this because kind of I can't stop. So if you can do anything else, my first piece of advice is go do something else. Um, After that, write. You don't want to be an author. You want to be a writer. You want to tell stories for whatever reason. Um, I think because I find human beings so bizarre and inexplicable, I write in part to tell myself stories about why people behave certain ways. Um, Beyond that, some people are word writers. Some people are plot writers, some people are character writers. Um, it's good if you can at least get a mastery of all of those things. I would, I would add scene writers because there's people that write, maybe they fall into the words, but it's like they're beautiful paint pictures in your head. Yes. Some of them are so beautiful, I can't remember what happened in the book. I just remember thinking, wow, it was so vivid and beautiful. Yeah, I, but different people are powered through the process by different things, which, you know, because people are all different, that makes all the sense in the world. Um, And, I mean, I know people, my friend Ellen Clay just writes, she bought, I think, possibly the last remaining stock in a particular kind of notepad. And she has maybe a thousand of these things in her closet and she writes longhand and then transcribes it all onto her computer. Ellen writes uh, longhand? It, seriously? Yeah. Wow. Ellen writes longhand. And this may be why she mostly writes children's books, because um, they're shorter. Um, Ellen is an astonishing writer. I, I cannot recommend her stuff enough. But different people do different things. As I say, I tend to compose on um, a a keyboard of some sort. With the proceeds from my first book, I bought an IBM Selectric, um, which is a dinosaur precursor of laptops, but it was very high-tech at the time. 
And I used to sit on my bed cross-legged with this 40-pound thing on my lap, which is probably why my knees are in the shape they are today, and write. Um, everybody so, does. I was going to say, I really like the way you, you call that out between, it's similar to what uh, Kit Catherine Card said, that's like, are you a novelist? As in, do you want to get one novelist in paper that you can hand to everybody? Or are you a writer? Be just you just have so many stories fighting to get out, and I think it's there's a lot more people who are writers than realize it, and there's a lot of writers that just want to because they have the stories, so they need to get the skills to bring out the stories as well. Yeah, and I think that there are some people who don't actually want to write; they want to have written. Th um, those are the ones that Kit called the novelist. They they might produce a novel and then send it to everybody for the next few years for Christmas, like a fruitcake, and that's what they do? Yeah. Um, it's not... My mother was a very good writer, but she, uh, she wanted to have written. She did not want to actually sit down and do the work. Now, granted, there are days when I don't want to sit down and do the work. There are days when I will polish the dog or reorganize my shoes or something rather than sit down and write because I'm having a problem with something. But I, I think the single most important piece of advice I would give someone who wants to tell stories is there's no right way to do this, which means also there's no wrong way to do it. You do the way that works for you. The only thing you have to do, as a friend of mine used to say, is don't forget to write. It's a muscle. <laughs> and the more you use it, the stronger and more flexible and more helpful it's going to be to you. Okay. We're running near the end of our time, so I want to ask one other question. We are writing now in the time of cholera, as it were. Uh -huh. Is there anything that – tell us how you manage to keep focused or – focus at all or get things done during this time being creative when the world is full of stress and uncertainty? Um, I have taken on a peculiar chore. I'm making surgical masks to send to um, helpers. Um, at the moment, I'm not doing anything because I'm waiting for elastic. Uh, Joe Haldeman, when I went to Clarion 100 years ago, said, volunteer for something. Get involved in your community in some way because it grounds you. And in this particular time of uh, plague and anxiety, or as they keep saying on TV, in these uncertain times, I'm finding that feeling that there is something I can do other than just keeping us fed and walking the dog to contribute. This is my victory garden or my bandage rolling from World War uh, I uh, is hugely therapeutic and helpful. It, you know, just doing something. Um, you said that John was working with young people. That would be fabulous. Um, I actually offered to teach a class. Nobody got back to me about it, about world building, because I've done that with kids before. Let's hold on a second. Well, we're going to run a little bit late today because, hey, John, uh, can you set up some kids that might be willing to join a class if Madeline came and talked about world building? Definitely.
and well. uh, we'll discuss that offline. Um, uh, but since we've mentioned it on here, if there are other writers who want to join in, please contact me through the podcast or on my any of my links, and I That'd will work with Madeline to set it up because arranging students is something I do very well. It is, and there's a lot of kids that a couple that I've met with that are John's proteges that just encouraging and telling them that the stories that are inside them are interesting because they are, and they're learning how to ask the questions to build worlds, and I think it's a beautiful thing. That, that was my final word to the class that I taught was, ask the next question. Thanks so much for being with us today, Madeline. We're going Thank to put, you so much for having me. We're going to put links to stories and how to find Madeline and the interesting things we mentioned on the website, which is www.writersdrinkingcoffee.com. John? I have a next question that I have to ask now. When can we get you back on the podcast again? It's wonderful. <laughs> the, the amount of knowledge you've given and the fact that my horrible addiction to research, I'm not alone. <laughs> oh, no, honey. <laughs> Come sit on the research bench next to me. It is the actually the, the real problem with research is it is a drug and it can distract you from your writing. It's a beautiful drug, just like coffee. <laughs> you've, you've been listening to Writers Drinking Coffee, which is a labor of love and enthusiasm put together by the hosts. Our main web support magic is brought to you by Deirdre McGaffey Schween, and our sound engineer and backup web spider is Dave Welsh. Our intro music is Pretty Maid Milking a Cow, and our exit music is Breakfast with a Morning Person, both by Michael Engberg. You can hear more from Michael Engberg on manyhatsmusic.com. Our podcast sponsor is Jackal Designs, enabling you all to go out and buy cool WDC swag, including our new Red Coffee is the Best Coffee, and All You Need is a Plan shirts with T quotes from the show. And thanks so much for listening. <laughs> <laughs>